What's going on, folks? Welcome back to yet another episode of In Defense of Liberation, the show that is working towards and educating about a true people's liberation movement and one day soon a true proletarian revolution. But until that day comes, I am your host, Josh, and I'd like to say thanks for stopping by. If this is your first time checking out the show, I really appreciate you stopping by. I hope you enjoy it. And if this is you coming back, I'm glad to hear that something I said was worth listening to again. So anyways, today we are going to try to dive a little bit further into a discussion of tactical tactical decision-making throughout history when it comes to things such as elections. Because for those of you who don't know, we are in the middle of a period where elections, for example, in Central and South America are in full swing. Um, Chile, Venezuela, Nicaragua, and many other countries are undergoing different forms of electoral processes. of course, in Nicaragua, the FSLN, uh, the Ortega administration, was re-elected, and the people of Nicaragua very explicitly uh, and, and openly showed their support for the revolution in Nicaragua and for what it has built um, a similar outcome in Venezuela as of last night and this morning it is being announced that the socialist bloc um, outplayed the right in a way that is almost not mirrored in uh, many other places because for those of you who don't know the right wing within Venezuela has been uh, blockading uh, the or I, I should say um yeah, they are uh, blockading the elections and have been for quite a few years. Uh, and this was the first time that they participated in the election in at least more than a few years. And must be in that period of time of consistently being the mouth put, the mouthpiece of uh, the U.S. State Department and constantly uh, allowing for right-wing violence sanctions and other forms of oppression to continue without any opposition or any real strong opposition to these different forms of repression. Uh, Obviously, it seems that having done so led to an almost decimation of the right wing within the Venezuelan government. I mean, almost nobody voted for them, and those who did, of course, uh, oftentimes came from regions, uh, and uh, they oftentimes were uh, probably going to be of a certain character that would vote for a right-wing government within a practicing socialist state. So, I would say that Even those who voted for the right wing, I wouldn't even clarify or classify or care to know what their perspective or their wants are because I do not see them as the people. Uh, 
I'm sure there are those who were caught up. I mean, I'm sure it wasn't just wealthy billionaires who voted for the right wing. But my point being that, you know, to even stand as a right-wing government or right-wing opposition within a country like Venezuela, that's, that's imperialism. That's, that's them, you know, acting upon the imperialist needs of the empire. Uh, and oftentimes, if they are not directly funded by the U.S. empire, they end up getting some money from them or getting some training or getting some, you know, technology, etc. So one way or another, the uh, left-wing government in Venezuela will once again be re-elected. Now, this was not just simply the Maduro administration. Um, For those of you who, like myself, are learning about countries like Venezuela, there were approximately 30,000 positions, I believe, across the entire country, both local uh, and federal government positions that were up for election, and over 70,000 candidates ran. So, I think for myself personally, right, this is a part of the process of building popular power and of developing the consciousness of the workers and of the oppressed peoples within these countries. But I just can't even imagine, I can't even imagine what it is like to have to go vote. And I know that, uh, for example, Zoe from People's Dispatch mentioned on their discussion of this on Give the People What They Want, uh, which is a show that you folks should check out. Um, I know that she mentioned that Venezuela has, like, the most advanced voting, uh, like, machinery. But even still, dude, like, I don't know. And this is why it really shows the difference between politics as it's understood under this, you know, bourgeois American system and politics as it's understood under a socialist one. Because, you know, uh, the majority of us maybe know two or three people, uh, like, by name. Probably don't know much about their policies or their history. But we probably know two people by name when we look at our ballots to vote. Maybe two or three, right? Imagine (laughs) pulling up and there's, like, 177 people you have to vote for. And there's, like, 30 in each, you know, position. But this is why when we understand that the country of Venezuela has an election process like this, we have to get it through our skull that these are not poor, illiterate, stupid people like a huge majority of the American population. But in fact, these are politically conscious and active members of society who have to have some working knowledge of not only these individuals, but what their policies are, whether or not they have any backing from U.S. imperialists. They have to have a better and more concrete information uh, uh, receiving process. They have to have better, uh, you know, uh, 
guidelines for the materials that come out within Venezuela in order to maintain proper information and to fight uh, all these misinformation campaigns that we commonly see here in the U.S. time and time again. Um, All of this takes incredible organization. It takes incredible knowledge on part of the government officials, the voting, uh, you know, booth workers, and also, uh, you know, incredible amounts of education and practical participation uh, by millions of Venezuelans. Um, That is something that the U.S. could not dream at this moment of emulating. But I think that when we look at countries like Venezuela, when we look at countries like Bolivia and Nicaragua, you know, there are some common critiques that we hear, especially surrounding their use of electoralism. Now, I am someone who has come out and said before that electoralism, especially in the context of the United States, is not a revolutionary tool. However, one thing that Marx, Engels, all the way up through Mao, uh, Thomas Sankara, Daniel Ortega, you know, a lot of these people recognize that what elections truly can be is if at the very least, so let's talk, let's talk in a few different, you know, circumstances. So elections prior to having an organized, uh, proletariat party, the participation within elections, especially on a national scale, is not as monumental to the actual outcome of the election itself or the advancement of material gains necessarily, but participating in elections, not simply just at a national level, but also at local levels, even prior to having an organized party, can serve two roles. First and foremost, you have, in some cases, an opportunity to expand your propaganda and your agitation. However, again, let us remember that the U.S. poses a difficult uh, uh, threat and we have to understand the circumstances as they exist here in the U.S. for those of us who are here in the U.S. to actually be able to do something about them. So we know that that's not always the case because you have someone like Kathy Rojas who ran for mayor in New York City. You have someone like India Walton who ran for mayor in Buffalo, New York, both of whom were just consistently slandered in the media They were not given the same amount of debate time. They were not invited on to as many interviews. They were not able to do as many public forums. And on top of that, in the actual, you know, media sphere, nine times out of ten, the articles that were ran against these two were akin to those who were run against folks like Bernie Sanders, which is just the fact that, like, Oh, this person is a socialist, so everything that they think is destroying America and giving everything to lazy people. That's, that's you know, a majority of the information that they'd probably see. 
and there would be, you know, smear campaigns. I mean, they tried to connect a arrest that India Walton had had uh, years back, which, uh, you know, she was never charged for. Um, they tried to connect that to her being dangerous as a mayor. Uh, they, you know, constantly brought up time and time again her conversation of defunding the police. And I would like to take a moment to say, for those of you who might not know who India Walton is, she's a democratic socialist. So I'm, this is not who I was like jumping up and down thinking this is the person who's going to get us through to the revolution. But it's just the simple fact of understanding Then you have someone like Kathy Rojas, who's a member of the PSL, which, you know, plenty of people have critiques about the party. But if you look at the difference between a group like the DSA and the PSL, the PSL is pro-revolution, at least in word. And they are talking about that in their recent article about Kyle Rittenhouse. They talk about the need for true Leninist politics in their newspaper, Liberation News. Uh, But again, I'm not a member of the party. I have no practical experience and I've heard, you know, things from other people which I have no basis of information. So at the end of the day, my point is not that these are two revolutionary organizations that have some differences but that these are two organizations that exist, that do exist for different purposes, that have different stated goals, and ultimately can be, you know, looked at, understood, and if you feel, you know, inclined to, join. Um, I'm neither, you know, pro nor against either one of these kind of like, non-democratic parties as a stepping stone towards something better. I don't advocate for either one of these parties simply just because I don't necessarily stand behind either one of these parties. But my point being that the worst thing that can come of this is that you join an organization, you realize that that organization isn't doing what you need to do you get the experience, you get the connections, you learn how to organize, you learn, you know, a little bit about political education, and then you step out and you try to join a better other organization. You know, that's not necessarily a bad thing. Um, And I don't think that anyone should expect that outside of an organization that you're going to be able to radicalize and really experience things at a higher level than if you were a part of an organization. So that's kind of where my mindset goes, that like by joining an organization, I'm really going to be given the opportunity to have like those with experience around me to have an environment where I can actually discuss and learn, uh, you know, growing, like I said, relationships and solidarity with folks in my local community. I... I can't see a bad thing with any of those things. Um, But again, you are a, for all intents and purposes, an individual who can make individual decisions. So if you join a party, you get in it, you, you know, you participate with it and you feel that this, it's not what it needs to be. My friends, you are not beholden to some, you know, iron discipline. 
I know groups like the Communist Party and others make it difficult to resign from positions because you're in these positions based on peer voting and, uh, you know, confidence in your work, there are always ways where you can leave the party. Um, But, you know, at the end of the day, I personally feel that we are not organized in the United States. We do not have, you know, a revolutionary vanguard. We do not have millions upon millions within a mass movement all connected to uh, one another. And this is really what I feel is important. We really need to work on this. Um, I actually have a friend. I have a few friends, believe it or not. (laughs) I actually have a friend, uh, my homie Felix down in Venezuela, who I was speaking to yesterday about the elections and about the situation in in America, he asked me, and if I wasn't, you know, driving, I might peek and read it verbatim, but he basically asked me, you know, what is the, the level of organization in the U.S.? And I'm not involved in any national parties, so I can't really speak for the efficacy and the validity of these parties. I can only speak my opinion about these parties, which you and everyone else ought to not follow based on any blind, you know, agreement. But you should always disagree and you should always question everything you hear on, you know, the simple basis that other people are wrong. You're wrong a lot. I'm wrong a lot because we have a lot to learn. We have a lot to experience. We have a lot to grow. But anyways, if, you know, if this is the case, I feel that what we really need to be doing is trying to ask ourselves, is there a group in our local area Or, if we want to take it to a little bit bigger scale, a national party, which is really able to constitute an oppositional force against the status quo. In my area, I would say there are different groups which are developing and are trying to oppose for example, the Democratic Party. The issue being whether or not their principles and ideology is actually inherently oppositional to that of the Democratic Party. Because something which we see, for example, in groups like the DSA is a capitulation to bourgeois politics and society. Um, It's not always. It's not in every realm. And there are things that this group says or does that you might be able to point to and say, well, this isn't, you know, petty bourgeois shit. But let's really ask ourselves, the democratic socialists have existed for how long and done what? 
the PSL is another group which has, you know, national recognition, is involved in plenty of demonstrations, uh, and, you know, in my local area is really, like, the group to get behind. Um, my issue that I hold with, uh, the PSL is not necessarily a disagreement, but a a lack of understanding. I don't really know how to square in my mind the things that members of this party have been accused of. Um, I also don't know how to square in my mind um, some of the, you know, just kind of lack of gains which have been able to be had in the course of this party's existence. Um, But again, I think that if we are going to be so simplistic in our judgment, then we're never going to be able to find an organization that we can get behind. Because there's always going to be in, you know, there's always going to be inequality under the capitalist system. There's always going to be contradictions within the bourgeois society between races, between genders, between uh, social strata. And a party needs to be practically and constantly combating those contradictions at every level even from within the party. That's that's my perspective. So, for example, someone like Elaine Brown, who I've mentioned before on the show, who was a member of the Black Panther Party and was actually their chairperson in uh, Oakland, she speaks to the fact that, the, for example, the accusations of misogyny, of, uh, you know, violence, etc., against the Black Panther Party as an organization, she points out is, you know, a fallacy. And she was like, I think her exact quote, because me and my homie talk about this a lot, I think her exact quote was, where do you think that we're getting these men from? Revolutionary heaven? Um... In response to a question from a person who was in the crowd of one of her speeches, when they said, um, you know, weren't, weren't the Panthers a bunch of, you know, misogynists? And she was like, you know, I joined the Panthers in Oakland, and every single one of my superiors was a woman. I was the chairwoman, she says. How is it that you can sit here and ask me this question? Are the Panthers misogynistic? That question and, you know, these judgments and opinions which I'm kind of conveying about the DSA and the PSL, they only hold water given a certain context. And when you're actually trying to organize and participate with these parties and in the struggle, things take on a new perspective and a new understanding. Now, I'm not saying that the critiques against these different parties are not valid. And I'm not saying that we excuse or ignore the actions of individuals within these parties which have been given proper evidential, you know, uh, guilt. However, what constantly, constantly 
I hear when I bring these things up to friends of mine who are involved in actual organizations is first and foremost, what are you going to do about it? Because sure, it's really great to hop on this podcast and talk about the fact that the PSL sucks, the DSA sucks, the, you know, this group sucks, that group sucks, and here's all the reasons why, while not even being in an organization myself, That's only going to lead to a lack of organization in general among the left because it's going to feed this narrative that you're never going to find, like we said, you're never going to find a truly revolutionary group. So to get organized is stupid. That's in the past. You know, politics are for the rich people. We don't need that shit. You know, we just need to get with the people and we need to just get feed in the people. Well, how? And who's we? Because when we're talking about we... What you're talking about is an organized group of people, whether it's under a three-letter name or it's just a few people in your local area who are coming together, it doesn't matter. You still got to organize. You got to figure out where you're getting food from, how you're delivering clothes, who you're going to bring this shit to, where you're going to post up. You have to figure out why you're doing this. Will you spread ideology and propaganda as you do this? Or are you just going to help people meet their direct needs? You know, are you going to collect people's information? Are you going to ask them questions? Are you going to try to get them to join meetings? Are you going to try to get them involved in organizing, etc.? All of this is a part of organizing. And so if you're doing that, and if you're sitting here saying, what do we got to do? Well, we got to fucking form some parties, some organizations, and get going, get organizing. Because right now, a lot of us, not all of us, but a lot of us are, t- you know, time and time again, caught isolated. Most of us aren't a part of, you know, organizations, let alone revolutionary national organizations. The majority of us don't talk to other people in our local area about socialism, about the changes that are needed. The majority of us don't even participate in trying to unionize our workplace, let alone trying to build a revolutionary communist party. So what I'm really trying to say is that one thing that was made abundantly clear by the successful revolutions in Russia, in China, in Cuba, and one thing that is clearly evident in the building revolutionary struggles in Nicaragua, in Venezuela, in Bolivia, and other places where they have had their revolution in Uh, you know, many stages where they are participating in building a socialist state. Um, There are things which are, you know, time and time again, evident and clear within these struggles. One of which being either a or a few central organs of power, oftentimes communist parties, but not always explicitly. Another thing that is evident time and time again is a initial kind of division and atomization of the different groups and the different people within society who are organizing and trying to build parties. The third thing that happens usually is over time these parties and these groups develop into one or a few central organs. 
the final thing that time and time again happens here is the central organs of, you know, political pressure, of social change, of economic gains, all begin to either A, debate about the fact that they either need to join together or that they need to figure out ways to win what they're looking for on their own. Again, depending on the situation, this looks different because in some countries, they actually want to join together. In other countries, they tend to think that they need to separate and try to vie for their own individual gains by themselves. You know, in Russia, you have the... uh, the labor unions and the workers' parties who try to organize specifically for economic gains and for the ability to unionize and things like that, simply for the workers in the factories. You also have, you know, organizations, uh, for example, like the Jewish Bund, who felt that it was only important to organize Jewish folks, Jewish working class folks into that party. Now, this wasn't always due to their own wants. I mean, for example, in saying that the Jewish Bund felt that the the Jewish working class was the folks that they needed to organize and the only folks that they wanted in, you know, the party initially, at least, you know, some members within the party, was because Jewish folks had time and time and time and time and time and time again been left out of organizing. They had been... You know, the contradictions still existed, even though you had people who were like, okay, yeah, the working class needs to be united and we need to be fighting for socialism and we need emancipation for the workers. There were still people among those who were saying, except for Jewish people. That shit happens today. I mean, why do you think for a majority of the union history in the United States, you had to have separate unions for women, you had to have separate unions for immigrant and migrant laborers, and you had to have separate unions for black folks? It's because time and time again, those unions which were powerful in the United States, like the AFL-CIO, like the IWW at one point, although not always, and like other groups like the Knights of Labor in the 1800s, those groups did not include, always, the other workers who were marginalized and exploited that much further because of race, because of gender, because of, you know, citizenship status. Uh, A lot of these unions at the same time in America and in England and in France and in Italy, they kicked out communists too. They kicked out gay people. They kicked out transgender folks. So it's not to say that by building an organization, all of our parties will, or all of our issues will fall by the wayside. But it is to say that outside of a party, these issues will not be resolved within a party and by using an organized, you know, structure uh, uh, such as a political party as we've understood it historically. Again, don't think about the Democrats. Think about the Bolsheviks. Think about the Sandinistas. Think about the uh, Venezuelans who are building, you know, community popular education. They're building uh, sexual assault popular education groups. They're having public forums. They're completely rewriting the, you know, the, the historical 
development of Nicaragua, not just through elections, but by involving themselves in almost every realm of society. And, you know, that's really what we're talking about. That's what we're looking at trying to do. Because, again, originally you're going to have all these groups kind of divided and atomized. But the goal of an organization is to bring everything that exists together. So we have to figure out a way to bridge the gap between white workers and non-white workers. We have to figure out a way to bridge the gap between uh, women, men, and transgender folks within society and non-binary folks. We have to find a way to bridge the gap between those who are doubly and triply exploited within society uh, and bridge the gap between them and the remainder of the working class. Because what organization does, right, and what really we want to get doing here is we want to figure out a way to have the most numerical, the strongest, the most united, the most politically conscious, and the most experienced participants in revolutionary struggle to all join together as an oppositional force against the ruling class. That is what a true class struggle is. But how we do this is not by taking them all and saying this is the one thing we're going to do. It's by taking them all, bringing us all together, getting to know each other, growing solidarity, debating among one another, learning what the differences are, figuring out if we can still build a party, building the party, putting forward a program, and ultimately continuing the mission of that program day and day by day. That means if today we have to organize as a, uh, you know, an oppositional party so that we can elect a mayor in New York City, which could you imagine? So Kathy Rojas got 26,000 votes in New York City. She wasn't allowed to debate. She wasn't allowed to go out and advertise the same way that the other ones were because she didn't have the money. She didn't have the connections. She didn't have the power. And she still got 26,000 people to vote yes for a socialist. That means in New York City, there are at least, and this is one of the other purposes of, you know, when you do have a party and even when you don't have a party, this kind of gets you an understanding of what your numbers are, figuring out where your army is, where the strength exists of the party, where you have connections to workers, where you don't have connections to workers, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Kathy Rojas and the Party for Socialism and Liberation found out recently that at least 26,000 people in New York City are on Team Socialism. Now, what varying level of participation they would be willing to go for, I don't know. They were at least willing to leave their homes and go vote for a socialist. So that much is quite clearly, uh, you know, different than what a majority of people across the world and across this country are willing to do. So she does that. And on top of that, she gets 26,000 people consciously aware that something needs to be done different. Because now 
26,000 people went out and said, well, obviously these ideas are the most likely to get people to vote for them because these are the ideas that are going to provide for people. So they voted. And then Kathy Rojas didn't win. So then these people now have to sit around with the conscious understanding that they knew that those ideas were what were going to improve people's lives. And yet somehow or another, people didn't vote for them and that person did not get put into power. We also need to realize that if that's the case, then going forward, we need the organization that put Kathy Rojas in that position to do double the propaganda, double the education, double the outreach, double the demonstrations, double the self-defense teaching in New York City, because now is the time to capitalize on those 26,000 people. Will those 26,000 people join the party? Will they start educating? Will they start agitating? Will they start organizing? Who knows? But the only way that we're going to be able to do it is if Party for Socialism and Liberation takes this opportunity forward and organizes further. So having an organization is having a central body and party organ, which at a moment's notice can shift, can take new tactics, can strategize, can debate, can have ideological uh, struggle, can participate in elections while also participation participating in uh, you know, prison abolition work while also participating in black liberation, while also participating in trans education and popularization of LGBTQ plus, you know, humanity. All of this can be done within a party organization because you're all coming together and saying, okay, what do we need to do? Okay, overall goal, objective, right? Strategy. But how do we get there? You know, and then because you're not just one person or a few people, you're an organization of, you know, at least dozens, you have dozens of people to say, okay, you three go down to the local, you know, uh, factory on, you know, your lunch break and talk to people down there. You five figure out how to do, you know, some kind of COVID safety teaching class within, you know, the schools and within, you know, public forums in the area. You four... I want you to draft up, you know, some literature so that these different people that are going into these different areas in our community, they have something to give people to make them interested in the party. And then everyone else needs to figure out where they fit in, you know, because there's other things that need to be done. We have to get the word out on social media. We have to be freeing political prisoners. We have to be petitioning the United Nations. We have to be calling out the uh, brutal assassination of millions of people across this world by the U.S. military. We have to be time and time again showing people how billions of dollars are used to starve, uh, abuse, bomb, and work towards regime change in countries all across the world. We have to be constantly doubling and tripling our efforts in feeding people, in building houseless shelters, in developing connections to international communities, in trying to build anything that we can that is going to be able to A, provide for a need for people who have it, and B, radicalize the people who use that. That's really what's going on here, and that's something that we need to be doing, and that's something we need to figure out how to do in our local area and get to it. 
Thank you for listening, folks. I know this is somewhat of a repeat of the episode that was released yesterday, but I think it kind of goes into a little bit more depth about specifically uh, why organizing among the many stratas within society is important. Um, because I think that that's really an important, uh, point to understand. Um, I'm trying to look up this writing here because I want to read a quote that popped up that I thought was really important, um, that I was reading this morning. So let me try to find that because I think it is, let's see here. Oh, it's a protest of social Democrats. Where is it? Um, Oh, no. There it is. So it's one of the last paragraphs. Let me try to find it. I even put it on Facebook, so I feel like I could even just pull that up. Let me try to do that. Um, Basically, just the the reason why I think that this is important to try to organize in this way is because we really don't have anything else going for us. So we might as well at least try to get those of us who are already like consciously aware and ready to organize, organized. We ought to do it in a revolutionary party that's program is intent towards building revolution and waging a class struggle, not temporary reforms or gains, not political representation within the capitalist system. Although both of these things are a part and parcel of the class struggle, we want to wage class struggle. We want the workers in power. We want a dictatorship of the proletariat, and we want the end to the capitalist imperialist system across the world. So here's the quote I wanted to say, quote, Still less can there be any suggestion of a serious change in the attitude of the workers' party towards the other oppositional parties. In this respect, too, Marxism has mapped out the correct line, which is equally remote from exaggerating the importance of politics from conspiracy, Blanquism, etc., and from decrying politics or reducing it to opportunistic, reformist social tinkering, such as anarchism, utopian and petty bourgeois socialism, state socialism or professorial socialism, etc. The proletariat must strive to form independent political workers' parties, the main aim of which must be the capture of political power by the proletariat for the purpose of organizing a socialist society. The proletariat must not regard the other classes and parties as one reactionary mass. On the contrary, it must take part in all political and social life, support the progressive classes and parties against the reactionary classes and parties, support every revolutionary Excuse me. Support every revolutionary movement against the existing system. Champion the interests of every oppressed nationality or race, of every persecuted religion, of the disenfranchised sex, etc. 
If we're going to do this, we have to do everything. We have to be everywhere. We have to be organized. We have to be militant. We have to be educated. And we have to know what it is that has worked historically and what hasn't. We have to understand how capitalism built this system, how imperialism is continuing it, and how unless we overthrow the capitalist bourgeois state, we will not simply be able to build a socialist state as we want it within the capitalist framework because capitalism naturally developed the need for a socialist revolution, not so that socialism can exist along with capitalism, but so that socialism can overthrow capitalism. Again, thank you so much for listening. We will speak again soon. Stay safe, folks. Stay revolutionary. Please, please, please reach out if you are in New York, especially. I'd love to talk to you. Uh, We will catch up soon, hopefully. You can find me on my social media, Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, and Twitter. You can also email me at indefensiveliberation at gmail.com. No caps or spaces. You can find my blog and my website at forliberation.wixsite.com forward slash website. Again, no caps or spaces. And until next time, folks, we'll see you soon. Peace.